0: You're going to love this. Just love it.
1: I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you'll love it.
2: I'm stuck in the middle with Pish posh. Not
1: scared at all. Stuck in the middle you with think. you, live from Pacifica Radio's KPFK. 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 91.7 FM, KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast. Coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the iTunes on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, RadioOrNot.com. And now on Radio Free Brooklyn. What up, Brooklyn? And of course, five days a week on Radio Sputnik. Welcome to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around the Swell fellow, says me, if not you. Uh, This is the Bradcast. uh, Oh, from Bradblog.com. Did I mention that? Uh, And if you don't think I'm a swell fellow, you can let me know at Bradcast at Bradblog.com, or you can just follow us on the Twitters and the Facebook at TheBradBlog. All right, welcome. Let's see. uh, A lot already. uh, Weeks barely started. It's already shaping up to be a very busy week uh, following a a shootout, a shootout, a Texas shootout over the weekend where nine were shot. Nine were killed. Nine members of uh, rival biker gangs in Texas at the Twin Peaks restaurant. Once again, sullying the name of one of my favorite television programs which is coming back, by the way, in 2016, um, nine were, were shot in this in this gangland fight, this rival biker gang fight, and killed. I should say nine killed. I don't know how many were shot. But the day after the shooting on Monday, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the Texas uh, Senate was back at it again, hearing a bill, according to the Associated Press, to expand gun rights in the Lone Star State. The bill uh, is expected to pass to reach uh, Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott's desk, who is expected to sign it. He has said he he supports this new open carry law, which would allow licensed gun owners to openly carry their weapons in public. (laughs) And that, of course, they were meeting the day after nine were killed in this uh, in this in this event in Waco, Texas incredibly enough, uh, about 170 bikers were taken into custody after that shooting. And uh, let's see here. Every town for gun safety, a a spokeswoman uh, for that group uh, who is against this measure says, quote, we don't currently have a campaign on Twin Peaks, but we are opposed to any establishment that serves alcohol allowing firearms. Guns and alcohol just don't mix. Well, that's where you're wrong, apparently, according to the Texas state legislature. They mix great, and they can't wait for there to be more guns in bars. Early indications, according to CNN, are that four of the nine who died in the Texas shootout were killed by police, according to law enforcement sources. But, of course, that's from CNN, so... Take it with the grain of salt that CNN has earned over so many years. We'll see if they're right about that. Interestingly, uh, we didn't see a... uh, Where are all the people uh, freaking out about these thugs uh, at the Twin Peaks restaurant? Why aren't they calling in the uh, National... uh, What is it? The State Guard. The The National National Guard. Guard Declaring a state of emergency, rounding up uh, hundreds of people and arresting them randomly. Why doesn't that happen down in Texas, in Waco? I, I don't know.
2: They there, It might I don't know. I'm trying to think about what the difference What's might be. What's the difference be?
1: between this gathering of bikers in Waco, Texas versus a gathering of angry Let's. I can't think of what the difference might be
2: in Ferguson, Missouri Ferguson, places. You know the yeah. Freddie Gray protests in Baltimore, Baltimore. You know, yet there's such a difference in the police presence and and how the police reacted to this group of people with guns. And
1: the police were there at the time that it all started. And yet, in,
2: in yes, in Texas, in
1: Texas, and yet they weren't rounding up people. They weren't bringing in tanks or and, and guess, militarized.
2: Where was the tear gas? I I can't
1: understand what is different about that. There's some difference somewhere in there. If you can spot any difference, feel free to drop us a line, bradcast at bradblog.com. Coming up in a bit, by the way, we will be joined by Seattle City Council member Mike O'Brien. Very interesting thing going on right now. Right now in Seattle as we talk, uh, folks uh, protesting up there at the Port of Seattle, taking to the water in kayaks, trying to stop. Shell Oil, from taking their huge rig up to the Chukchi Sea. Did I say that right? No, Chukchi. Chukchi. Chukchi Sea up in the Arctic. That's Desi Doyen, of course, our producer, uh, my co-host on the Green News Report, and my uh, corrector of all words and <laughs> <things> <laughs> And a good speller, I, too, I an might excellent add. excellent speller, right. And <laughs> she sings well, too. Uh, they're trying to stop this, uh, this Shell Oil, this adventure, that is underway once again after a disastrous misadventure by Shell Oil back in 2011. Well, Shell Oil is trying again to drill for oil up in the otherwise pristine Arctic, and the uh, the peoples of Seattle seem to be against it. And we will talk to Seattle Councilman Mike O'Brien, who himself was out in a kayak protesting as this huge, enormous uh, oil rig pulled into the into the port of Seattle, and in possible violation of the law, we'll find out. It, it appears the uh, I almost said Bush administration, and, <laughs> and it would have been accurate almost in this case. The Obama administration appears to have given uh, the okay for Shell Oil to head back up there. It has given them a permit. The uh, 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 what is it? B- Bureau of the Interior Department. It's the
2: Interior Part Department, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Right. They're the ones that are responsible for checking uh, enforcement regulations. But yes, it's underneath the Interior Department, and it is a conditional permit. They do right. have to meet several uh, benchmarks along the way. But you know that essentially they're saying, "Yeah, go right ahead."
1: And we'll see if they can meet them and uh, meet those benchmarks. And we'll see if the uh, peoples of Seattle can stop them. We'll talk about that in a bit. Um, And and I hate to go back to this again. No, I don't hate to go back to this again. I guess I'm just sort of surprised we're going back to this again. You know, after uh, Jeb Bush's stumbles and bumbles all last week, answering the question about Iraq four or five different ways, despite having about, mm, let's see, at least eight years to figure out how to answer them, uh, he ended up looking pretty stupid when it came down to the question of knowing what we know now. Would you, knowing that there are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, knowing that uh, Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11, would you have sent our nation to war, a war that ended up costing several trillions of dollars, uh, at least 4,000 uh, lives of U.S. troops, not to mention the number of contractors, not to mention the... Hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians that were killed in Iraq. Would you have sent us to? Well, he couldn't. Jeb Bush could not answer that question. He kept trying and trying. We talked about it all last week, every day. I thought it was a one day story, but he kept making it worse by getting it wrong, by changing his answer. Uh, and uh, Jeb Bush, who had been the front runner, perceived at least as the front runner in the uh, Republican. Clown car that is becoming the 2016 Republican nomination process, uh, started looking not so much like a front runner anymore. Started looking like he was really stupid. And you were seeing a lot of stories. We mentioned it on the show. Hey, he's supposed to be the smart one uh of the two brothers. There are more brothers, actually. So, but of those two that we know of, of W and Jeb, Jeb was supposed to be the smart one, looked pretty dumb, and suddenly Republicans started looking for alternatives. Where else are they going to go if, if not Jeb Bush? Well, they got about uh, 20 different people to choose from. And none of them are looking very good, actually. One of the uh, supposed front runners would be Marco Rubio. And at the end of the week last week, he then bobbled the same question. And uh, looked really stupid and seemed to suggest, well, of course, it was a mistake. Mistakes were made. And uh, George Bush has acknowledged that. And he even he wouldn't have gone to war had he known what he knew now. Well, no, he that's not the case. George Bush has stood by uh, his belief that it was the right thing to do to go to war. He has not apologized for that. He said even though his brother Jeb finally at the end of the week said, no, uh, I wouldn't invade. But George Bush has never said that. And so for Marco Rubio to even suggest that uh, former president George W. Bush has admitted the mistake. No, he hasn't. Not at all. You're wrong, Marco. And the fact that you couldn't figure that out and you also couldn't come up with an answer to that uh, otherwise predictable question raises questions about you, Senator. And the idea and and so what they're all sort of doing, what all the Republicans are sort of moving to now is, yes, it was a mistake. Mistakes were made. Had we known what we know now, okay, we wouldn't have gone. But mistakes were not made. And we pointed this out last uh, last week. They knew the intelligence was incorrect or at least the intelligence they were telling us about. They knew at the time there were no weapons of mass destruction. Oh, maybe some biological or chemical, maybe, but nothing that uh, threatened U.S. interests in any way. So we talked about that last week, and uh, Paul Krugman over the weekend at New York Times talked about the same t- the same thing. Now, mind you, he said years ago, years ago he was against the war, and of course, uh, all the folks in Fox News, the right wingers, they all oh no, he's a he's a lefty, he's a liberal, he's a Yeah, he's wrong. He doesn't uh, care about this man. He's a friend of the terrorists like Saddam Hussein. Well, Paul Krugman was right. He was right all along. And he uh, he wrote over the weekend. uh, Yes, the narrative goes, we now know that invading Iraq was a terrible mistake and it's about time that everyone admits it. That's what the Republicans are saying. Now let's move on. Well, says Krugman, let's not. Because that's a false narrative, and everyone who was involved in the debate of the war knows that it's false. The Iraq War was was not an innocent mistake, a venture undertaken on the basis of intelligence that turned out to be wrong. America invaded Iraq because the Bush administration wanted a war. The public justifications for the invasion were nothing but pretexts and falsified te- pretexts at that. We were in a fundamental sense lied into war, says Krugman in The New York Times, where, by the way, they helped lie us into war. He says, so, yeah, let's not move on. Let's get the story of Iraq right. From a national point of view, the invasion was a mistake, but it was worse than a mistake. It was a crime. And he's absolutely right. It was a crime and it was a crime that no one, no one to this day has been held accountable for. And I think one of the reasons we all moved on, one of the reasons this question has caught me by surprise. Of course, I'm not running for president, but one of the reasons it's caught me by surprise, uh, and and many others, is, well, by the time George W. Bush left office, it wasn't just a, a you know a war disaster. It wasn't just an ecological disaster with Katrina and everything else, but we had an economic disaster and the globe was spiraling into economic failure. And you had uh, Barack Obama for the first I don't know how many years of his presidency trying to mop up the mess that the Republicans left behind from the previous administration. And so Iraq sort of fell off the radar for some. Not for us at bradblock.com. We, we were calling for years. Let's have some accountability. Let's throw some of these war criminals in jail. Or, you know what? Let's give them fair trials. Unlike they gave to uh, how many hundreds of innocent people who are still, still being held down in Gitmo. They're not all innocent, by the way, down there, just most of them. Give them a fair trial. Bring out George W. Bush. Bring out Dick Cheney. Let them make their case for war and why they did it. And let them tell us why it wasn't a crime, why it wasn't a war crime. Let them. Well, all of this has come up on, of all places, Fox News, which is somewhat ironic because now you've got uh, <laughs> folks like, uh, what's her name? Uh, Liz Cheney, of course, Dick Cheney's daughter, uh, out there you know, blaming the media for asking about Iraq. And uh, John Sununu, Republican advisor to the Bush administration, former governor of New Hampshire, uh, calling it a dumb question. They shouldn't even be asking it. Well, you know who they're calling dumb? They're calling, let's see, uh, Megan Kelly, Sean Hannity, Chris Wallace, on all on Fox News, because they're the ones who are asking these questions that guys like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio don't seem to be able to answer. It became a uh, comedy of errors, I, I think, over the weekend on Fox News when Chris Wallace had on Marco Rubio, which led Kevin Drum at Mother Jones to uh, write an uh, write a, a piece headlined "Marco Rubio is a moron," and I think he might be. So listen to the way uh, this this went down with Chris Wallace over the weekend on Fox News Sunday. We did not edit this. This is, I believe, what went out on air. I'm uh, taking out just the end a little bit here because it's already a bit long, but I'm going to go ahead and play you the full two minutes of this uh, exchange between Chris Wallace and Marco Rubio, who about six weeks ago had been asked about it uh, somewhere. I can't remember. Uh, and he said, no, no, it, it was not a mistake. It's a, it's good that we got rid of Saddam Hussein. There was There was no mistakes made in that regard. And then, of course, since all of this has blown up, he changed his tune and he said, well, of course, knowing what we know now, we wouldn't have done it. But anyway, it turned into a comedy of errors with that uh, liberal media over there on Fox News, Chris Wallace and Marco Rubio on Fox News Sunday.
0: Given what we know now, would you have invaded Iraq back in 2003? As we all know, Jeb Bush had a tough time answering that this week. Here's what you've had to say. Was it a mistake to go to war in Iraq? No, I don't
3: believe it was. The world is a better place because Saddam Hussein doesn't run Iraq. After finding out there were no weapons
0: of mass destruction, would you, if you knew that, have been in favor of the Iraqi invasion?
3: Well, not only would I not have been in favor of it, President Bush would not have been in favor of it. And he said so.
0: Senator, isn't that a flip? Six weeks ago, it made sense to invade Iraq in 2003. Now you say it was a mistake. No, the two different questions. It was not a
3: mistake. The president, based on, this is the way the real world works, the president, based on the information that was
0: provided But she was saying based on the information.
3: No, no, but look. She was saying
0: based on the what we know now.
3: Well, <laughs> based on what we know now, a lot of them, based on what we know now, I wouldn't have, you know, thought Manny Pacquiao was going to beat uh, in that in, in that fight. of ago. I know, but he ago. did asked the did. same didn't.
0: question, and you said it no, made not sense. The same,
3: no, it was not the same question. The question was whether it was a mistake. And my answer was, it's not a mistake. I still say it was not a mistake. Because the president was presented with intelligence that said Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. It was governed by a man who had committed atrocities in the past with weapons of mass destruction. What
0: she asked you was, was it a mistake to go to war with Iraq? It was not a mistake,
3: given the fact that the president knew at the time. No, she
0: didn't say that. She just said, well, was it a mistake? that's not
3: the same question. The question I was asked is, what you know now? Well, based on what we know now, I think everyone agrees that Was it that a we mistake?
0: Still, was it a mistake to go to war with Iraq?
3: Uh, it's too, it wasn't, I, I'm asking you just... Yeah, I understand, <laughs> but that's not the same question.
0: But I'm ask, But that's the question I'm asking you was it a mistake to it go was to, not
3: a mistake for the president to decide to go into iraq because at the time he was not not asking because, you that
0: i'm asking you in hindsight yeah well, the
3: world is a better place because saddam hussein is not there so, so i wouldn't mistake characterize it but i don't understand the question you're asking i'm asking the you president, knowing everything as we no, sit
0: here in 20 but that's not the way presidents don't a
3: president cannot make a decision I, I on I what understand. someone might
0: know in the future but that's what i'm asking you was it a mistake
3: it was not a mistake for the president to go into iraq based on the information he was provided as president
1: So, uh, clear as uh, mud, I guess. That was Fox News with Marco Rubio, and he's having that much trouble answering his question, says uh, Kevin uh, Drum over at Mother Jones. He says, and I agree with the truth is I don't care about Rubio's actual position on the Iraq War. The guy's trying to run on a platform of more hawkish than thou, and that's pretty much all I need to know. Most of the time he sounds like a 10-year-old trying to sound tough in front of the older kids. He says, but I'm seriously beginning to wonder if he has a three digit IQ. After Jeb Bush's week long debacle trying to answer this question, every Republican candidate candidate ought to have their own answer figured out, and not just figured out. By now, their answers ought to be poll tested, cut down into nice little sound bites, smoothly delivered, so you'd never even know this was a tricky issue in the first place. But no, Rubio. Rubio sounded like this question came as a total surprise. Seriously, Marco? This guy does not sound like he's ready for prime time, says Kevin Drum. A- and that was the friendly media on Fox News. Now, I said I didn't cut any of that, and and I only—I cut off the end there, but I—well, I, I well, okay. Th- there was a little bit more to it that, that I didn't play you, and, and uh, I—well— Go, I guess, Dazzy. Let's let's go ahead and play the the full clip so they can get an idea of what it was really like uh, between Rubio and Wallace. Because we couldn't, you know, play that forever. We had to cut out some. Here's a little bit of what we cut out.
0: You know the guy's names on the baseball team. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean, the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The
2: guy (laughs) on first base. (laughs) Who is on first? What are you asking me for? I don't
1: know. I don't know. What do you mean? Did you know now what you knew then? No, we didn't know now what we know then. If we knew now what we knew then, he didn't know what we knew now. Did you know it now? No, I didn't know. Oh, man, man. And these are the front runners. Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio. I guess we move down to uh, well, let's see some of the uh, some of the uh, the felons. I guess uh, Perry, Texas. Uh, what's his name? Well, he's not Rick a felon Perry. yet, he's but not, he is
2: uh, he is indicted.
1: The indicted uh, Rick Perry. He'll be jumping in the race uh, very soon. It looks like he's announced. Chris Christie. Who knows if he'll be indicted or not? So that's that's who we go to at this point. Uh, so, I, you know, I used to apologize last week. I was apologizing for covering this. But uh, you know what? We need a reckoning. We have never had a reckoning in this country on the issue of Iraq. No one has been held accountable. And now we're looking at a bunch of guys who are running for the uh, highest office in the land who not only supported the war but who have since not come out and recognized that, A, it was a mistake, or B, that it was not even a mistake in the first place, that we knew that it was wrong. It was a purposeful decision, it was a lie, and it was a crime. Over at uh, Bloomberg News, Jonathan Bernstein uh, says, he offers some better questions for the media to be asking. And he's right, there are better questions. If all of this was a mistake, if the uh, uh, intelligence was flawed, etc., then how would you, Mr. or Mrs. Candidate, uh, avoid that? And by the way, they ought to be asking the same thing to Hillary Clinton because she, too, voted in favor of the war, though she has since said uh, that was a mistake and that she was wrong. So here's one question. As president, what would you do to ensure that advisors with an agenda don't steer you into a foolish policy? Since many now claim that George W. Bush was misled. Other Republicans are saying that uh, well he reacted appropriately to the faulty intelligence. Okay, the intelligence wasn't really faulty, but even if that was the case, Mr. Candidate, how would you guard against basing decisions on faulty intelligence? Others have said, "Oh, everybody was just following groupthink, go working together, not questioning." So, what would you do as president to prevent groupthink? Asked Jonathan Bernstein. These are great, uh, great questions. I hope they will be asked. I hope we continue to talk about the folly that was Iraq, because if we don't, we will repeat it. We'll probably repeat it anyway. But there needs to be some accountability. And the idea that we're going to just rewrite history and, uh, you know, pretend that, oh, well we knew at the time was that uh, Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11. We thought he had weapons of mass destruction. No, no, we didn't. So since even the Republican candidates now seem to agree that mistakes were made during the occupation, what should the president have done differently to achieve better results? Great question. Ask that of Marco and Jeb. Good luck uh, helping them even to understand that question, apparently, or any of those questions. These guys are not the brightest bulbs in the pack. Man. All right. Quick break straight ahead. uh, Seattle City Councilman Mike O'Brien will join us to talk about uh, the new mess up in the Arctic. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Right. Well, uh, it depends which boat you're talking about, I guess. If it's the oil rig, go ahead and rock it. If it's one of those little kayaks out there trying to stop the oil rig, be careful. All right. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, thanks to the burning of fossil fuels such as oil and coal, the Arctic is now warming at an alarming rate, as you all know. That means, of course, there's a lot less ice up in the Arctic, thanks to the burning of oil and coal. And guess who benefits from that? The oil companies, naturally, as the loss of sea ice means that they can now actually get rigs up into the otherwise previously frozen Arctic to drill for even more oil so we can burn more fossil fuels so we can do even more drilling in places that we never could before. In 2011, uh, as oil companies began looking at the uh, at the Arctic and the Chukchi Sea, which is now much more accessible than ever, uh, U.S. Coast Guard Admiral Robert Papp, at the time he was the commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, testified before a U.S. Senate hearing on all of this and said that if something goes wrong up in the Arctic with one of these drills, mind you, this was a year after the Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, um, if something goes wrong like that up there in the Arctic, in the otherwise pristine waters, the Coast Guard, he said, was not uh, able to sufficiently respond to anything that went wrong. Here's a here's a comment from Coast Guard Commandant Robert Papp back in 2011 in the U.S. Senate.
0: Our current Arctic capabilities are very limited. We have only one operational icebreaker. We do not have any coastal or shoreside infrastructure. We do not have a seasonal base to even hang our aircraft or to sustain our crews. Imagine if we had to mount a major pollution response. We'd have to create our own infrastructure.
1: Yes, imagine. The very next summer, 2012, uh, with much of that winter ice now gone entirely or melted earlier than ever before, and despite those warnings from the U.S. Coast Guard, the top official, Shell Oil received a permit to bring huge drilling rigs up to, the, uh, up to the Arctic, up to the Chukchi Sea, to drill. The result was a comedy of errors, with their huge oil rig eventually running aground in the rough seas, another vessel uh, catching fire. Suffice to say, enough disasters took place that Shell decided it was too difficult to drill up there at all over the summers of 2013 and 2014, and they didn't go back. This year, however... They have once again applied for a permit to try and drill <clears throat> up in the pristine waters of the Arctic and conditional approval has now been granted to them by the Obama administration's department of interior last week, a huge offshore drilling rig arrived in the port of Seattle where it was greeted by hundreds of protesters on kayaks in Elliott Bay, uh, part of the ShellNo.org campaign. Uh, On Monday, a few hundred critics of oil uh, drilling up there blocked entrances to the uh, Seaport Terminal in Seattle, where Royal Dutch Shell's massive floating drill rig is being loaded up before heading off to the waters of Alaska. One of the protesters last week was city council member Michael Bryan, who has otherwise spent most of his professional career working in financial management. But last week he was out on the cold, if quickly warming waters of Elliott Bay, on the port of Seattle in a kayak himself as part of the protest against the huge drilling rig that Shell is now sending up to the Arctic. Councilman O'Brien served for 10 years as the chief financial officer at the local law firm of Stokes Lawrence. He was first elected to the city council in 2010 and originally became involved in local politics in the first place as a volunteer with the Washington State Chapter of the Sierra Club. Councilmember Mike O'Brien joins us now. Councilman, welcome to the broadcast, sir.
4: Thank you, Brad.
1: Uh, great to have you here and uh, really appreciate what you're doing and putting yourself on the line up there, I guess, uh, in, in the waters of the Elliott Bay. We're going to talk about that in a second. But uh, I, I just want to get an idea, uh, Councilman. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell or Shell Oil must now get both state and federal and presumably local permits before their, before the drilling begins. Uh, ha- have they now received all the permits they need? from uh, state and local government now, because they've got this huge rig up there already, presumably uh, good, uh, good to go. Do they have what they need?
4: Actually, what we found in Seattle is they are here in violation of the existing permits, and we are working on enforcement actions um, to get them back into compliance. Uh, the city of Seattle issued a permit, a shoreline permit, to the port of Seattle about 20 years ago to operate this terminal as a cargo terminal. Um, but Shell's oil rig is clearly not a cargo vessel, and we have found that they are in violation of that permit. And um, unfortunately, the, the remedy for us is to issue fines, which escalate up to $500 a day, which for a company like Shell <laughs> is really a meaningless amount of money. So right. we're struggling with what we can do to actually move them to in compliance. but it demonstrates their willingness to frankly just blatantly disregard local laws
1: and and, uh, do you have any evidence that they knew in advance that this was a violation and they say well we don't care we'll just pay the 500 a day to uh, to to park our rig there
4: I mean the first thing that happened is is this whole lease that happened in Seattle through the Port of Seattle happened almost exclusively behind closed doors Um, non disclosure agreements um, it was all it was all done in secret and well, in advance, where they could have brought it up and asked questions about the permit, do we need to get a new permit? But none of that was part of the strategy Last week, the port of uh, the commissioners on the port of Seattle um, on Monday said, "Shell, please do not come to Seattle to our terminal until we resolve the permitting issues." On on late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, they pulled anchor from Port Angeles and towed that rig into Seattle. Um, And I was one of the the folks on kayaks out there on Thursday afternoon when it actually came into the port in violation of what the city said to do and even what the port itself said to do.
1: Are are there any laws that, as a a councilman, that either exist or can be created at this point to say, uh, you know, no no drilling rigs allowed in in the Port of Seattle?
4: Um, there may be laws like that. We're exploring our options. The kind of reality on the timeline we're on is that none of those laws would take effect for at least a month or so. Mm -hmm. And so what we would be mostly looking at is um, how to prevent that drill rig from coming back to Seattle next fall once it completes its Arctic exploration, assuming the wreck of the Kulik doesn't happen again and it's destroyed and has to be scrapped we don't want that coming back to Seattle and, and the
1: Kulik that was the that was the rig they tried in uh, back in 2011 that uh, ended up going ashore becoming a scrap metal because uh, it was such a disaster D- is there any other so it, it sounds like there's no way to stop this particular rig uh the, I guess the polar pioneer I think is its name yep from making its way up to the Arctic Uh so it's a lost cause this year. Whatever that they do with that rig, there's, there's nothing that can nothing be done. I would say nothing's
4: a lost cause at this point. I can't spell out a clear path for mm-hmm. what we do, but I can tell you that we are exploring all of our options. And I can tell you that you know two months ago um, we weren't aware of the permit challenges they've had, and we've found that. So we're working at all angles we can. We will continue to move forward on enforcement, even if all we can do is find them five hundred dollars a day. We will be doing that. Um, obviously, there needs to be some sort of legal remedy when the financial implications are so low relative to the the company that they have no reason to come into compliance. So we will explore is there an eviction process we can go through? What that might look like, um, and also the environmental community and the activists are um, you know actively engaged in stepping up their demonstrations to make life really hard on Shell, both in Seattle and getting to the Arctic. And I don't know what that specifically means. But I think we'll expect to see more and more people engaged in those um, protests.
1: As you were one of those kayaktivists, as they're now calling them, uh, uh, council member. uh yes. Do do they ha- are they hoping to actually physically block this huge rig from being able to exit the port and head up to uh, to Alaska? Is that? Uh, never mind whether that that sort of uh, a protest is legal or not. But is it even possible?
4: Well, you know. Um, I was out there on Thursday when the rig came in and there were probably um 35 boats, maybe 50 people out there. And you know, the 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 number of us and the size of us compared to this, you know, this monstrosity that's you know, is a monument to the hubris of the oil industry sitting on our waterfront was the the difference was stark. But I can tell you on Saturday when we went back out, there were probably 500 people out there in kayaks and other small watercraft. And it um well, we certainly were towered over by that. You have the sense that, you know, when this many people are opposed to it, um, we can certainly create some problems for Shell. And that might happen. Um, I don't know exactly what the plans are. I don't know the timing. I don't Mm. know what the strategies are. But I do know there are a lot of people that are very passionate about preventing Shell from, you know, creating a disaster up in the Arctic or a climate disaster if they find oil.
1: Are, are, do you know, are there more rigs headed that way, or is this it for this year for Shell Oil, this this one, uh, uh, a Polar Pioneer rig?
4: So the Polar Pioneer um, essentially replaced the Kulik as one of the rigs. There's a another vessel called the Noble Discover, which is in Everett, which is about 20 miles north of Seattle. That was a rig that was up there in 2012 with the Kulik. It's a... Um, it looks like a boat with an oil derrick in the middle of it so it's kind of self-propelled oil thing and you know that rig survived 2012 it was found in um I think they pled guilty to eight different uh felony counts of violating maritime and environmental law um, I know on its way over from the South Pacific uh, it stopped in Hawaii and once again failed coast guard inspections for its oil separator which was one of the problems in 2012 so they have this this piece of machinery which they've proven time and time again they can't operate safely that will be the sister uh, rig that will be up in the Arctic as far as I know with shell this summer
1: and and those felony charges that y- you say they they pled guilty to them
4: yeah okay. that's my understanding there's eight eight counts um, for both maritime and environmental law. which violation.
1: ones yeah which once again means uh, oh, okay we'll plead guilty we'll pay the fine it won't be uh, we'll earn it back in three minutes at the pump D- those were felonies that were actually Committed during their last adventure uh, or misadventure up up in the Arctic and back in 2011. Correct. And and they're still at it again. So it's like it, these fees, these fines don't seem to matter. Uh, Councilman, have you heard from or or spoken to anyone in the uh, in the federal government about this? The uh, uh, Bureau of Interior, I guess, is the one that gave them this conditional approval. Approval. What were they? What were they thinking, and do they just not have the federal laws to say no to a request like this from Shell Oil to drill up there?
4: Well, you know, the city council, all nine members of the city council and the mayor of Seattle, we sent a letter to Secretary Sally Jewell, the Secretary of Interior, in advance of her issuing the permits. Um, and Sally Jewell is a product of Seattle. She used to be the chairman, uh, chairwoman of REI. Um, Asking her not to issue those permits. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, uh, the Obama administration and Secretary Jewell have gone forward and um, kind of started to open that path for drilling in 2015. So, to the extent there's been a conversation, it's been a letter-writing conversation. We're disappointed in the direction the the federal government is taking from the drilling permits. The Coast Guard's a different uh, different agency, and they um, to date they seem to be very taken very seriously all the requirements that need to happen. And I believe that before this drill rig can head back to the Arctic, it needs to pass some Coast Guard inspections. I don't know the extent of those and the likelihood of what they will pass or fail those. Um, But I believe that's why they are here in Seattle to do that work.
1: So there are a number of of, uh, choke points, uh, I'll I'll call them, uh, between now and those rigs actually opening up the Arctic to drill where they could be stopped. Uh, You heard, uh, I I believe you could hear the... uh, The comment from uh, at the time, uh, commandant uh, uh, Robert Papp of the U.S. Coast Guard warning that we don't have facilities to respond up there is I mean, that's that seems to me quite troubling in and of itself, uh, setting everything aside. But are there other ports of call that Shell Oil or any other oil company, I guess, that wants to do this, can use other than Seattle? If you guys come up with a way to stop them from doing this, do they have any other options uh, to use as a home port for these uh, drilling adventures?
4: I don't believe they have good alternatives because I don't think they would have brought that monstrosity into Seattle um, knowing the the commitment to environmental protection that the people of Seattle have, if they had better alternatives. I'd heard that the choices were basically Seattle or Dutch Harbor up in Alaska. And part of the problem that happened in 2012 was that they raced to pull the Kolek out of Dutch Harbor before midnight on New Year's Eve, before they would have to pay more taxes Yikes. in Alaska. And the, the, the ship wasn't ready to go. And so... You know, it's, it's this track record of this company that's already spent $7 billion trying to drill for oil in the Arctic with nothing to show for it, um, skirting laws, trying to avoid paying taxes, making bad decisions for the safe, the public safety or the safety of the environment, um, all so that they can make more profits from the, the pump.
1: Well, let me ask you this, uh, maybe to play the devil's advocate here, uh, uh, Councilman Mike O'Brien. Um, why shouldn't they? They're in the business of, of drilling for oil. Uh, they're, you know, they received a permit from the federal government. What's wrong with them going up there and drilling? As, as you see it, setting aside the argument, the, the, the climate change argument that we need to leave a lot of this stuff in the ground. I mean, don't they otherwise have the right to go drill oil? We, we need it. We burn it. We use it in this country and everywhere else. What's, what's the problem here? Why is this different you, than any other drilling operation? In other words,
4: I'll, I'll give you two answers on that. The first is um there's international consensus around climate change, and even the u s government has signed on to a commitment that we will not allow global temperatures to increase more than two degrees celsius and The science is pretty clear beyond that that if we need to maintain that two degree uh, within that two degree temperature increase, we already have three times the fossil fuel reserves on this planet um, to cross that meaning Two-thirds of the fossil fuels we've already identified need to stay in the ground if we're going to prevent crossing that two-degree threshold and catastrophic climate change. Shell is trying to say, no, the three times we already have is not enough. We need to go to the Arctic and get more to make that problem even, more, even worse. So from a climate perspective, it's, just, it's ludicrous that we're even having this conversation. From an economic perspective, it's also not clear that Shell is making sound decisions. Um, every other oil company has pulled out of the arctic because it's it's a very expensive environment to operate it's very risky the technology for oil drilling is largely not around ice and frozen areas Um, as i've mentioned shell has already dumped about seven billion dollars into this um, endeavor which is probably the reason why they're still doing it because it's this fallacy of sunk cost that they just are being stubborn and can't walk away from but i believe there's a chance that with the the protests, the bad publicity the other regulatory hurdles that they still will need to go through, it may be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And we may see the end of Arctic drilling um, this summer here in Seattle and in the Arctic.
1: Oh, man, that would be encouraging. Uh, in a minute or two left, uh, we have here a uh, councilman. What's the uh, what's the local take on this issue? Are are residents or local residents against this? Or is this just an activist thing? Is this a small group are, are, or are you able to tell what your constituents are saying about this?
4: It's a great question. You know, as a politician, I'm always trying to um, understand what my constituents are doing. So this has been an issue that's been on the forefront of of our work here in the city going back to January. And I can tell you that uh, when I am out in the community talking about the various things I work on, and I mention, oh, and by the way, I'm going to try to be out next weekend in a kayak protesting shell, I hear almost universal support from the community um, that want that they're offended that Shell thinks they can drill in the Arctic. They're offended that Shell wants to host its Arctic drilling fleet in Seattle. They're very upset that the port of Seattle allowed this to get as far as they can, and they're very supportive of our efforts to say, we are drawing the line. This is not going to continue on. And so um, I feel very... uh, I feel very reassured by the people of Seattle and this region that we all universally think this is a crazy idea.
1: Apparently you do, because you got in a a kayak to uh, make your voice heard. You're a councilman, not an activist. What what led you to, or maybe you are an activist too, what led you to taking taking to the bay uh, in a kayak as a form of protest here? Why do that instead of using your uh, powers as an elected official?
4: Well, I'm trying to do both. Um, as you mentioned in my intro, I've been a volunteer with the Sierra Club for about 15 years now. Um, and so I do come from a kind of community organizing activist background a bit. Um, the thing that really triggered it for me, Brad, is that this issue around climate change is is one of the central issues that I've spent, uh, you know, over a decade working on. And we have to do some some really hard structural changes to our society to get weaned off fossil fuels and oil. Um, and we have to find new jobs for those people working in those industries. We have to, you know, be very methodical about how we transition our economy off of fossil fuels. While we're doing that hard work, we cannot make big steps backwards. And Keystone Pipeline is a big step backwards. The oil trains coming out of the Bakken oil fields are a big step backwards. Coal exports through the Northwest are a big step backwards. And shell drilling in the Arctic and opening up the whole Arctic under that ice shelf that was previously protected as a new potential oil reserve is a huge step backwards. And for me, because it's happening right here in my city on my waterfront, um, I, I frankly can't just stay in my chambers and work on this. I felt the need to get out there. Um, and join with my fellow citizens to be part of the, the activity on the water.
1: I've pointed folks to shellno.org which is uh, a website where they're, they're helping to organize these protests. Are there anything that other folks around the country, around the world, frankly, we go out around the world with the, with the broadcast, uh, is there anything that folks can do who are not in Seattle? Or even if they are in Seattle, where, where would you point folks to go to uh, to help out on this effort? Uh, con- con- so
4: consumer? so shellno.org is definitely the, the central organizing space for all the actions that are moving forward. Um, I would encourage anyone in the region, and we had people, I think, from throughout the Northwest coming to Seattle last weekend to partake in the the peaceful demonstration. I would encourage people from around the world to continue to elevate this discussion locally. Um, It's important that the whole world sees that companies like Shell that have so much money and so much power to disregard the health of our planet and our people um, need to be held accountable and not do this. Shell is an energy company. They can be investing in renewable resources just as well as they can in oil, and they're just being stubborn because they see money to be made in this. And we need to make it clear that as people and citizens of this planet, we're not going to allow that behavior to be tolerated anymore.
1: Great point, Uh, the fact that these oil companies now call themselves energy companies, but they don't seem to be uh, spending quite as much time or energy... Uh, as it were, to, uh, to tap into uh, solar and uh, geothermal and all kinds of other renewable, clean energy sources. City Council Member Mike O'Brien, really appreciate your, your work up there and uh, your willingness to join us to discuss it today. I hope you'll, you'll stay in touch with us as this moves forward.
4: Absolutely, Brad.
1: Thank you, sir. OK, a quick break and then we're back with more broadcast, including a 10,000 year old Antarctic ice shelf that will disappear by 2020. Oh, brother. Uh, oh, and uh, religious freedom in Indiana again. Will it apply to a Rastafarian's pot charges? We'll find out right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs> Freedom. If only Republicans loved freedom as much as they pretend to love freedom. If only half as much as they pretend to love freedom. Even in Indiana. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. We will get to this uh, Indiana freedom story, or lack thereof, in a moment. My thanks to City Seattle City Councilman Mike O'Brien. He was great.
2: Yeah, he was was awesome.
1: He was really fantastic. I wish we had more elected officials like him, not just guys who are willing to get into a boat and uh, into a kayak on rough waters and protest, but he really understands this issue and he's getting to work for it.
2: Yeah, and I think it's really encouraging because, you know, knowing now his history as, you know, starting out as a volunteer with the Sierra Club and then moving forward into, you know, political activism, but then stepping up to the plate as an elected official and now putting his values and his money where his mouth is. He's actually, he was actually out there in the harbor with the in his kayak. Yeah, so when, when are you
1: running, Desi Doyne? That's a great question. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, and actually, I shouldn't take credit for it. We were you and I were on a show over the weekend, uh, with our uh, friends, uh, our affiliate at FYI Nation. Yeah, and, and that was one of the first things she asked you is say, Hey, Desi, when are you running for president? You
2: know, and it's it's a really interesting question <laughs> and it's really hard to do. And I understand why people don't do it, but it's I think with, with people like Mike O'Brien kind of you know showing the way and saying, Yes, step up, let's do this. Well, let me
1: ask you this, Desi. Knowing what you know now, (laughs) would you well, never mind. All right. Uh, Tomorrow on uh, the broadcast, by the way, I I think we'll be joined uh, if the radio gods are with us by Congressman Hank Johnson from uh, uh, from Georgia, who was one of the first to step forward with his stop militarizing law enforcement act even before. Things blew up in, in Ferguson last year, and suddenly it became fashionable to be upset by the militarization of our police. We've been upset by the militarization of our police on this program and on bradblog.com for many more years than that, going all the way back to the Occupy protests and and well before that, in fact. So he'll be here to talk, uh, talk to us about uh, whether he is uh, pleased with the uh, White House's announcement on Monday that there will be new restrictions on the federal program, the 1033 program, that supplies local police officials with military-style equipment. Uh, the Obama administration's task force is now uh, saying they're going to put limits on that. They're no longer going to supply things like grenade launchers, armored vehicles with tracks on them, armed aircrafts, bayonets, and guns and ammunition of 50 caliber or higher to local police. Uh, and uh, there's a bunch of other new restrictions and a bunch of other things that are not restricted. So we will hopefully be talking with the congressman about that on tomorrow's broadcast. I, uh, I mentioned before the break uh, in Indiana, you remember a few weeks back, Mike Pence, was uh, the governor there, was pretending to give a damn about freedom, specifically religious freedom. Of course, he was only interested in religious freedom because he thought that this was a way to push back against the freedom to marry the person that you love, against marriage equality. And he signed that uh, religious freedom bill and then asked for a fix to it and so forth. Right after that happened, there was a. Uh, we covered this at, at bradblog.com, and I, I don't have it open in front of me, but there was a. Uh, a a guy uh, who claimed that he was setting up a church, uh, a church of cannabis, I think is what he called it. And he was going to get religious freedom for uh, people to come and, and smoke at this church and enjoy cannabis all they like. Under the idea that, hey, all you got to do is say you're a church, fill out the paperwork, and uh, then it's uh, part of your religion. Well, it actually is a part of the Rastafarian faith. That developed in uh, Jamaica in the 30s, and to them, uh, according to the South Bend Tribune, cannabis is a holy herb. Smoking marijuana is considered a sacrament that brings peace, wisdom, and a spiritual connection to nature. So, uh, let's see, last week in Indiana, uh, uh, where the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was recently signed into law, a judge rejected a a Rastafarian man's legal defense that his felony pot possession charges should be reduced because his cannabis use and cultivation are religious rituals. 30-year-old Jerome Scott, who is licensed to cultivate medical marijuana in Michigan, was caught with cannabis in Indiana. Now he risks having his next license renewal denied because of that felony conviction in Indiana. So he went to court to try to get that felony conviction removed now that, hey, religious freedom, baby. You can't make people like, uh, you know, do something that's in violation of their religion. He was sentenced to uh, 18 months probation uh, and um, the Superior Court, St. Joseph's Superior Court judge said, I understand there are many people who agree with you that marijuana should be legal, but you're in the wrong state for that. What you knowingly and deliberately did in Indiana is break the law by not only cultivating it, but also distributing it. He says, as Scott said uh, at his sentencing, that cultivating my own cannabis is my way of not contributing to the black market and drug-dealing tactics in my natural state. I don't believe I'm breaking the law. I know I am not harming anyone or causing any harm to the community. His girlfriend said that... uh, all of his hard work, all of his studying, his whole life, they're telling him he can't do that. And she feels that the fact that the felony con- uh, conviction could prevent him from continuing to cultivate cannabis for patients in Michigan is unjust. Well, in uh, the at least this court in Indiana disagrees and uh, thinks it's perfectly just. And uh, religious freedom? What religious freedom?
2: Well, some religions are more equal than others, you know.
1: Apparently so. Uh, okay. Uh, before we go here, I got a minute or two left. I want to hit this: uh, ten thousand year old Antarctic ice shelf will disappear by twenty twenty. G- you know, given what we were talking about with the council member, uh, and, and the importance of uh, you know, not of keeping these fossil fuels in the ground at this point, uh, it's very disturbing that now this new study from NASA uh, finds that the last remaining sections of Antarctica's Larson B ice shelf is dramatically weakening. The study predicts that what remains of the once prominent ice shelf, a thick floating platform of ice, will most likely disintegrate completely before the end of this decade.
2: Yeah, that's kind of a big deal.
1: Kind of, yeah. The flow uh, is creating um, cracks in the ice shelf. The, uh, they've uh, this NASA found evidence that uh, the ice shelf is flowing faster and faster and becoming more fragmented. Uh, uh, Ala Kazender of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory says these are warning signs that the remnant is disintegrating, although it's fascinating scientifically to have a front row seat to watch the ice shelf becoming unstable and breaking up. It's bad news for our planet. The Larson B ice shelf has existed for at least 10,000 years. And now it's rapidly disintegrating, and uh, it it partially collapsed already in 2002. No one had ever witnessed a large ice mass like that disappear so quickly in just six weeks. It just disappeared. And now they're worried that the rest of the ice shelf, which is now a, a little bit smaller than Rhode Island, it had been larger than Connecticut, now it's smaller than Rhode Island, they're afraid it will be gone by 2020.
2: And what's weird about this is that, remember, these ice shelves that stick out over the water, they're like doorstops or retaining walls. When that ice shelf itself disintegrates, then all the big glacier that it's holding back on land on the continent of Antarctica starts to push faster into the ocean. So the doorstop is going to be taken away.
1: Yeah, that's not what's weird about this, That's what's scary about it. That's what's terrifying about this. Point taken. (sighs) Or we could just ignore it completely. Act like it's not there. Act like it doesn't uh, exist. And it's all our imagination. Hey, climate change is sure. It's been there for 10,000 years. Yes, it's going to leave in uh, days. But, you know, stuff happens. Uh, Tune in uh, tomorrow for the next terrifying adventure of Bradcast. (laughs) My thanks today to uh, our producer, Desi Doyen, to Seattle City Councilmember Mike O'Brien. And of course, to all of our affiliates, and particularly you, the listener, really appreciate you tuning in and spreading the word about the Bradcast. You can and should contact me, if you like, via email, Bradcast at Bradblog.com, or even better, follow me on the Twitters and the Facebook at The Bradblog. Until we meet again, uh, you can find me on the Twitters and, of course, at Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.